Ecclesiastes 7 is where we are. I was thinking about this this week because there's a local church that I have. Well, there's a local. I'll call them a church. What the heck? That uh, that's been discussed before in here. And um, they're a pretty famous church at the moment. And recently they had their Easter service on a grand scale. And I was watching the message from it. And the pastor said, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus being on the cross. And he said, Jesus didn't die for the people back then. He died for you. And I know what he was getting at. He died for you. But he said he didn't die for the people back then. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. You know. But then he went on to make this altar call. And the basis of the altar call was um, Jesus died for you. Come down and be saved. All you have to do is come down here. Basically, you'd have a better life. You'd be provided for. You'd be taken care of. You'll have joy. Um, Jesus died for you. On and on. He said kind of that that kind of thing. And, and I'm not going to be too disrespectful here. This is the gospel, I guess, but it's missing something. What's it missing? Repentance, yes, missing like you are a sinner. <laughs> Let's start there, first of all. It's not just come down here and everything will be better. It's you're, you're, you're a sinner. I mean, you've got to start by recognizing that you, you, you need him. He died on the cross for you because of something, because you're a sinner. And so this week, uh, we're going we're gonna to actually take a piece of Ecclesiastes 7 and a piece of 8 because they fit together. And then we'll fill the gap in next time. But we're going to talk about if the world was yours, would you fear God? Last week we were talking about if the world was yours, or last time we were together, would things be better? Remember we talked about he's given this kind of poetic language and he says it's better for a pure name. Death is better because you've completed things. The funeral home is better because you're being that you see respect for the dead on and on. Um, we talked about last week or last time we together. So look at verse 15. We'll pick up there thinking on this. If the world was yours, would you fear God? Solomon says in my vein, and I say it's Solomon. It may not be, but my argument is I, I'm, I'm on that side of the argument. If you don't agree, go back and listen to the first week of this podcast, but I'm not going back into that now. Verse 15 in my vain life, I have seen everything. That's a quite a sentence, isn't it? <laughs> In my vain life, I have seen everything. Vain there being that word, vapor, you know, breath, meaningless kind of idea. Saying in my meaningless life or in my vapor of a life, I've seen everything. I dare say that's probably not true, but he's probably seen a lot. He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That sounds unfair, doesn't it? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. 
Why should you destroy yourself? I mean, how can that be a bad thing? That don't sound like a bad thing, does it? Be not. So he, he starts out in verse 15 and he makes this comparison. He says, there's a, there, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life. That seems like it's unfair. The wicked like parties it up. Kind of think about David and, and uh, Job all the time with this one. Why do the wicked prosper and why do the wicked always have fun? He's saying that wicked people, they're living it up. And I've seen them, their life just keeps on going. They just can't ever seem to die. Then I've seen righteous people uh, suffer and die young. And then he says something bizarre, though. He says, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then he gives the other side, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So, verse 16, what do you think he's getting at here? Be not, the first half, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why destroy yourself? What do you think it means? Why destroy yourself? Pride, yeah, pride comes before a fall. That's the idea. He's saying you're, what he's talking about here is you destroy, you're destroying yourself. He's not even talking about judgment per se. He's talking about you destroying yourself. So what he's getting at there is pride or self-righteousness. Do not be overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. I'll give you a great example of that is these theologians and 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 you know i wrestle with it too because i tend to get over excited about things that are so deep that sometimes i miss the forest for the trees or i'm trying to communicate something to somebody and the basics would be good enough but instead i'm trying to get so deep and before i know it it's like wow look how much dave knows you know and that's that's what he's getting at on on one level is don't make yourself too wise here Not that wisdom is wrong, but when you start doing it, things change. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, the other one is you destroy yourself. This one says die before your time. Who determines when you die? God, right? So this is something different here. He says God's the one that determines when you die. Now, I'm on... Right, coming right at us, making that theological statement. I'm going to throw a theological monster at you, and you can wrestle with it later. We won't spend all day on it. But there is a fairly common belief that there is a certain level, per se. I don't know what it is or what it what it looks like. But there is a point to which a believer could could be engaged in a sinful lifestyle, and there's only so long God's going to take that. Before he either breaks you or removes you from the situation. I will go on record and say I I tend to believe that. Only because I feel like I have been there. I feel like there was a point in my life where I was certain. I mean certain that God was saying, okay, you're you're at the edge here. You keep this up and you're out. You know, I'm I'm bringing you out, which sounds great. You're going to come home. You're not, you know, but that's not the way it felt. It felt terrifying. It felt horrifying to think that God would take me out. Um, But he was communicating with me and he was telling me that. So I don't believe I was lost hearing that. 
So I, I realize there's a lot of theology in that. Let me just write a note here. First uh, John five sixteen and 17 says this, and, and I'll tell you what it says, and then I'll explain a little bit, but, but we're not going to camp here. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. What kind of sin does not lead to death? What's the wages of sin? Death. So all sin leads to death. So what's he talking about? He also says if anyone sees his brother, that means believers. A believer who sees a believer committing sin that doesn't lead to death, then he should pray for him. Then he says this, there is sin that leads to death. Verse 17 says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That's what John says. Without going off in this, you can study it in your own time or holler at me later. Um, I think what John's getting at is the same kind of idea, that all sin is, is wrong. The wages of all sin is death. But I think that there are sins that a believer can commit that are not going to get you killed this minute. I know this because we all do it. And if, if you're going to tell me you don't, then you just did. Okay? So we all, we all have encounters with sin in our lives, even as believers. Uh, but I think what John's getting at is there's a time when you get, as a believer, you can get railroaded into an addiction, a lifestyle, I don't know what, but that, that is sinful. And despite God providing ways out and opportunities out and you continue to defy and continue to defy your family. He's not going to cut you off and send you to hell, but he might pull you out. And um, you might disagree with that, and that's okay. I swear, I promise, that's okay. It's a debatable topic, but I tend to be in that camp. So in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 17, the way I understand it, along the lines of 1 John 5, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So he's saying, you know what? You're going to do things that are sinful. It's going to happen. But don't be overly sinful. Don't be a fool because there's a, there's a time for you to die. But it could sure be shortened if you continue to walk in a lifestyle that's sinful. All right. Verse 18. Again, if you disagree, it's okay. Verse 18. It's good that you should take hold of this. So regardless of how you feel about that last little thing I said in verse 17, either way, Verse 18, let me tell you what's good. Take hold of this thing. And from that withhold not your hand. Hold on to it. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So whether or not you are finding yourself becoming too righteous for your own good, too wise for your own good, or whether you find yourself slipping into a place where sin is controlling your life more than it should be, If you fear God, you're going to come out of both. Fear God, you're going to come out of both. Give you a couple of places we'll turn. This will be one of them. Go to Jeremiah 17. You know this already. And hold your hand because we'll flip right back real quick. Jeremiah 17 says, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So he's cursed. This man is cursed because he trusts in men 
and his heart turns away from the Lord. Remember the Hebrew idea of heart is your mind, your will, your intellect, your, 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 it's who you are. It's not just your emotions. It's all of it. So he's saying that curse is the man who trusts in man and his, who he is turns away from the Lord. Verse seven, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Proper name there for Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So he's contrasting the two. One trust in man, one trust in the Lord. Verse nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Again, proper name says he searches the heart. He tests the mind. Again, heart, mind, it's the same idea. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So there's kind of the idea that he is searching the heart. and He's going to give every man according or woman according to the their ways or the fruit of their deeds. So you could say, well, okay, it works. He's going to give you good if you do good, or he's going to give you bad if you do bad, except for the fact that he said number nine, uh, verse 9 says what? Your heart is deceitful above everything else. Desperately sick. So, is it good deeds? Is it righteousness through works? I mean, you got the man who trusts in man, you got the man who trusts in the Lord. Look at back in Ecclesiastes 7, look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. We'll come back to that uh, in the next week. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You can't be more blunt than that, ladies and gentlemen. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth. Period. Does that include the high priest? Yep. Does that include the Levites? Yep. Does that include the king? And in this case, I believe to be Solomon. Yep. Does that include the tribe of Judah? Yep. Does that include Gentiles? Yep. Nobody. What's another verse that comes to mind when you think about that verse? Yep, both of you, exactly right. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And before you think, well, that's Paul in the New Testament, Paul is quoting Psalms 14 and Psalm 53. Who wrote Psalm 14 and Psalm 53? David, Solomon's father. In my mind, I believe this to be Solomon and Ecclesiastes. So, either way, David and Paul both say, none is righteous, not one. Nobody. Not at all. Go all the way back to Moses in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Moses said, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. The only thing that man intended to do was evil all the time. That's it. Which men? All men. When Moses is writing Genesis here, long before there was a Hebrew people. So this is not about that. This is about mankind. 
And then ultimately he destroyed it because of the flood. But that didn't make, did that mean that Moses, um, excuse me, did that mean that Noah was the one person righteous? What happened to Noah when he came out of the ark? First thing he does. <laughs> yeah, he gets a little sloppy. You know, you can go back and read that. It comes right back. You know, it comes right back. Go over to Isaiah 64. Another one that you're familiar with. And we're going to go away from this back to Ecclesiastes, but then we'll come back to it again. So you can tag it or hold it or whatever. We'll come back to it again here in a few minutes. But for now, go to Isaiah 64. And it says in verse 6, We've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, you've heard me talk, we've talked about this before, you've heard it before. All our righteous deeds are a polluted garment, filthy rags, some say. It's a reference to a feminine product, just being honest. Uh, but he says that you're our right, it'd be one thing if he said our deeds are that way. He said our righteous deeds are all that way. All of our righteous deeds are that way. But, but let's keep reading. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That sounds to me like what Solomon is saying. Blown blown in the breeze, man. Blown away. He's saying our sins take us away. Verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name. That's just the same language Jeremiah used. The same language Paul uses. The same language David uses. The same language Solomon uses. Isaiah is now using too. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt. In the hand of our sins. That's harsh. Perhaps one more that you're familiar with. Paul in in Ephesians 2. 1 through 3. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he says we all were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Well, all of us are in a heck of a situation. Go back to Ecclesiastes 7, and we'll come back to 64 in a minute, but go back to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 again. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. That ought to help you with that whole pesky verse a few minutes ago that said, um, don't be overly righteous. <laughs> if you keep that ver- this verse in mind, that ought to help you. Surely there's not a righteous person. On the, okay? So verse 21 says, chapter 7, verse 21, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. <laughs> your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. What is he saying here? couple things you could probably pull out of this. What's he saying here? Yeah, we've all thought evil things. Even down, He's saying even our talk, we're just as guilty as the next person. Okay, even in our talk, we're just as guilty as the next person. So you know, on one hand, he's saying, hey, you know, don't be nosy. You might hear something you don't want to hear. You know what I mean? But on the other hand, he's saying, but also keep in mind that you run your mouth too. You may not feel like you do, but you do. 
You know, maybe you don't do it as bad as this one does it or that one does it, but you do it. He's, he's building on that whole righteousness thing. Nobody is righteous. No, not one. Nobody is. And he's saying that even, you know, yeah, sure. There may be people who talk about you, but before you jump the gun, you're talking, you talk about other people too. So what hope does an unrighteous person have? How can a person be right before God, you know? I met a guy in uh, Ireland. He was kind of the door into the IRA moment that I had. But he he was on the streets of Cork City where I was, and he had, didn't live on the streets. He's married and had a home. But, I mean, met him out in the streets of the city. And he looks just like me. Uh, he's got tattoos and shaved, cut short head and the red beard and all that mess. Hit it off with him pretty quick. I liked, liked him a lot and um, got introduced to him by the church planner that we were there with. And I, I mentioned before, the church is just so slow. I mean, some of those church plants have been there for eight, nine years, and they have six or eight members. It's just so slow because of uh, how far away from the gospel these people are. And, and there is no gospel there, for one. But had become interested in seeking truth. He's told me this, and his wife told me both. He wanted to know truth. He wanted to know answers. He had questions. He felt like that he wasn't getting enough of, of the answers from the church, Catholic church. In fact, he talked about wanting wanting to feel uncertainty and everything. And so one of the things that he did just in the past year, year and a half, the priest gave him uh, a suggestion. And so on the priest's suggestion, he paid a couple of hundred bucks, a couple hundred euros to the Catholic church and then went to this old monastery that was near, not too far from where we were. It has, has a, like he said, it had like these looping circles. So I kind of pictured a fig, couple of figure eights or something. He said it had these like looping circles of sharp stones on the ground and that you take off your shoes and you fast for three days and you walk around these sharp stones barefooted fasting and they have a progression of Hail Marys and Our Fathers that you're supposed to recite. He told me, but I don't remember. And you count rosaries and all that while you count the rosary while you do all that. He said, most people don't make it because the starvation and the pain makes them snap and they can't get through it. But he made it. You know, he said, I actually, I actually made it through. It's about went crazy, but I made it through. And I was like, well, did you get what you were looking for? He said, no. But this guy, anyway, he was willing to do all of that to get right before God and still didn't find it. Looking at this guy, and other people like him, he's not the only one who are doing these things to try to find penance, you know. You probably know the story in Matthew 19. If the world was yours, would you fear God? Matthew 19, verse 16, a man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what, must, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And he says, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. A little caveat there jesus calling himself god but he says if you would enter life keep the commandments so jesus basically tells him to go do good deeds works that's what you need to do go do good works that's what he says and then the man says which ones <laughs> i love that <laughs> go do go do good works and you can go to heaven you know keep the law do good works which one <laughs> And Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. Man says, yeah, I've kept all these. What am I missing here? 
that's that Ecclesiastes 7.16 person right there. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. That's that, that's that language right there. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what your, your possessions give to the poor. You have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. So Jesus said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You want to be perfect. Oh, well, if you want to be perfect, then come follow me. He says, go sell everything. Points out he has weakness. But the key there is come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. And then in verse 24, the disciples are tripping about this. Verse 25, they, they say, who, who can be saved? Who can be saved then? What's Jesus' answer? You're not there. You don't have to be. You probably know. With man, what? It's impossible. In other words, works are never going to do it. You can, there's nothing you can do that's ever going to do it. With man, it's impossible. You can walk those circles. You can bleed your feet to death. You can do. Any, you can climb the step. You can climb the steps of the church on your knees till you get it raw. You can do anything you want to do. It's not possible. It's not possible. With man, it's impossible. But what? With God, all things are possible. It's by grace through faith. That's what Paul said. We don't have any righteousness. All our deeds are worthless. He's our righteousness. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 11 real quick. Galatians chapter 3. Paul's dealing a lot with the law. Galatians is a great book in dealing with the law. Verse 11, it says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, by good deeds, by doing good works, whatever you want to call it. Nobody's justified before God by the heat of the law. Nobody. For the law, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting the Old Testament when he says that. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. In other words, he's saying the law is not based on faith. The law is based on doing things. It's based on obedience. He said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. Not by works. It's evident that nobody can be justified before God by works. By law. It's not possible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all know that verse. Look at Galatians 2. Back up. You know this because you hear me quote it all the time. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. But watch this second part here. The life I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith, not by works. Why can he not live? Think about it in context of this sentence, okay? Why can he not live by works in the flesh, in this sentence? Huh? Because he's dead. Thank you, Sarah. He's dead. I have been crucified with Christ. There's no way he can live by his works because he's dead. He's hung on a tree 2,000 years ago. How in the world is he supposed to live by works? It can't be done. So he's saying the life I live right now, I'm living by faith because I'm a dead man. And then he says, 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for his righteousness were through the law. 
then Christ died for no purpose. If my works could get it done, why did Christ have to die? That's what he's saying. You know, Philippians 2.12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as always, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Your works are a product of him working through you. Making sense? All right, go back to Ecclesiastes 8. And let me give you a couple of verses. I know we jumped over some. That's okay. Because these fit along with where we were. Ecclesiastes 8. Look at verse 10. Just a couple more here. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. Walked through a graveyard. Seeing the wicked. Who, what wicked? He'll tell you which ones. They, those wicked that are buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place. And were praised in the city where they'd done such things. Where, Who goes in and out of the holy place? Priests. Yeah, he's talking about the Levites here and maybe the high priest. But he's talking about those who went in and out of the holy place. And he's saying, they're the dead, the wicked. They're the wicked buried. And they were praised because they did such things. He said, that's a vanity too. Praising the priests. In Jesus' time, it was the priests, but it was also the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the ones that went in and out of the holy place and were praised for it. Think about that. He's saying they went in and out of the holy place as wicked men, too. You know, in Matthew 6, you don't have to turn to it. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Verse 5 Again, slamming these, he calls hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues that they may be seen by others. Matthew twenty-three, thirteen: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So he's talking about, that's who he's been talking about. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. But you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Matthew 5:20 says for Jesus says for I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's an awesome verse to remember by the way. Anytime anybody want to talk about works, that's a great one. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees you won't get into heaven. What's he saying? He's saying that they set a bar that is insanely high and he said you got to get past that. Well, there's no way to get past that. You know, there's only one that's past that, and that's Christ. And that's the point. But I'm thinking the Pharisees heard him say this. You know what I mean? They heard him say this. He didn't say it in the dark. He said it straight to them. So why do you think people are like that? Why do you think uh, evil continues, you know? People continue to act that way, even in, even in God's face. Even if they didn't think he was God, which certainly they didn't. He'd done miracles. They knew he had power and all these things. How could they hear that kind of thing and continue right in his face? Look back at Ecclesiastes 8. Look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. What does that mean? What ha- I mean, it's the same thing that we do, isn't it? 
Maybe not on such a grand scale as so many, but maybe we do. The idea is they don't have any fear of justice. You know, if I know my Facebook status has exploded. I mean, it's just been ridiculous. I've never seen anything like that. I'm sitting there thinking, I don't even know a thousand people that shared that thing. But what started that discussion, Joey was there, what started that discussion in that jail was the newspaper that day talking about the gang war. He was eating me up the whole day. It said, it was a quote from one of the gangs, didn't say which one, but it was a quote from one of the gangs that said something to the extent of, I don't remember the word for word quote, but basic message was, we have more guns than you have police officers. You know, and I'm thinking, number one, that's just dumb because it's not true. Number two, even if it, even if it were true that you did, why would you say that? I mean, that's like childish. It's just, it's just dumb. It's not, there's nothing smart about that. And my brain was kind of racking it over that whole day. But that's kind of the idea he's getting at here. They're not afraid of anything because they don't think they're going to, they don't think it's going to go bad for them. You know, there's no fear of, of justice. And when there's no fear of justice, then, hey, they just keep right on going, fully set to do evil because there's no reason to believe. Why, you know, why not? Look in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God. Here, Back to the fearing God thing. Because they fear before him. That sounds redundant. I know it will be good for those who fear God because they fear before him. What do you think that means? Let me give you a, a, a little help. The word before in Hebrew is like in the face of God or in the presence of God. So what do you think that means? Let's get the other half so you, we can weigh them out. The other half says, it'll not be well for the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So what's he saying here? I know it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him or in his presence. I think that's the right idea. It's not just in front of other people. There's no show to it, even in private. The idea is that God is present and you know it. Like you know he's present, right? And he's there. He, he's seeing you do it. He, he Whatever that is that you're doing... If you do it a hundred times, he's saying he's there all hundred times and you know it. You know it. As opposed to the wicked person, doesn't say that he's not there. It says he's there too. And they know it. And they don't, you know, so what? They don't care. So to one person, you're, you're heartbroken because what you're doing, God sees it. To the other person, yeah, God in your face. You know, that's the idea. How could you possibly say in your face to God, well, you don't have any fear. You have no fear of him whatsoever. And if you've fallen on your face and you're saying, God, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sure there's that heartbroken relationship scenario. But at the same time, there's a lot of fear in that. Yeah, well, maybe it's just me. Even if it's I don't want to be without you because I'm afraid to be without you, whatever it is. Second Peter 3.8 says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. It's funny how everybody takes that sentence and puts it with creation. It has nothing to do with creation. It has everything to do with what we're talking about, which is judgment. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. Holy bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What he's saying is it may take a while, but it's coming. It's coming. And if you're one of his people, you live by faith, not by works. But there ought to be a little bit of fear in there. And I think that Dave's opinion, but I think that in our society, in our day and time in America, in 2000s, we're real quick to take the word fear and say it means respect. And I, I do believe it means respect, but I also believe it means fear. I think it does. I think, yes, he loves us. Yes, he's our father. Yes, we can come before the throne. Yes, all those things. But I also think, I mean, don't you, be honest, don't you feel like it would be just a little bit scary if you saw God right now? I would be terrified. You know, I'd like to think if Jesus showed up, I, I would say, I love you. It's so great to see you. But I know Thomas saw him. And when he showed up to Thomas, Thomas flipped out. You know what I'm saying? Fell on his face. My Lord, my God. I don't I don't expect that you're going to be in a state of terror. But I think at least right now, as long as I'm in the flesh and my flesh has still got sin in it, which it does, that it's a pretty scary thing to think about seeing God, you know. Go back to Isaiah 64. We'll finish. I told you we were going back there. So this you can let go of Ecclesiastes. This is where we'll finish. Back in Isaiah 64, verse 6, he said, again, We've all become unclean. All our righteous deeds are a polluted garment. Verse 7, he said, There's no one who calls upon your name. You've hidden from us. You made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But look at verse 8. But now, I love this, O Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord, you are our Father. Now, that's a comforting thing. We are the clay, injure our potter. We are the work of your hands. You're our father, but he says you made us. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh. Remember not our sins forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Man, that's a great verse, man. You want a verse to pray sometimes. Verse 8 and 9, that's awesome. Don't be terribly angry forever. Don't remember our sins forever. Remember this. We're your people. You made us. You're our father. I mean, that's an awesome picture. Exodus 20, when they get to the mountain, what happens? When they're at the mountain and they're going to meet God finally. They've been delivered from bondage and they're going to meet God. God comes down to meet them on the mountain, says a word or two. And what do they say? Uh, Make him stop. All they're doing is hearing his voice. And they're like, Moses, Moses, you're going to have to talk to him. Make him stop. We're, we can't handle it because they're sin. They're his people. He just saved them. But they're saying that they're, they still feel sinful in his presence. They can't handle the thought of him talking. So they say, Moses, you go talk. Well, that's a picture of Christ. Hebrews, like chapter 4 through chapter 10, 
all talk about how Jesus is a better intercessor than Moses. He's our intercessor. So we have that invitation to the throne, but there also ought to be some fear of a holy God as long as we're in that sin. I'll, I'll be done with this. Um, Jonathan Edwards is famous for preaching a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You, you know, long time ago, he's long dead. But he's famous for it because they talk about that as he was preaching, that people became so convicted that they were white knuckling the pew in front of them, feeling like the floor was falling out and the flames of hell were chomping at their feet. And it caused a mass revival. Now, to us, we say in our day and time, oh, you know, don't preach hellfire, brimstone, whatever else. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that's what has to happen, but I am saying that a great revival came on the back end of people being just a little bit terrified of being in the hands of an angry God. You know what I mean? And I find that the more we have, maybe like Shaddock said, the more that we have, the less we are afraid of that God. And I'll be transparent with this and say that I find that I've been thinking about this for a few years now. I think that part of the reason that I wrestle with some of the same sins, maybe some of y'all do too, I don't know, but... A lot of times I wrestle with some of the same sins over and over, and I think, how can I mess this up again, or how can that thought pop in my head again? And I think at the root of it all, it's not so much idolatry as it is I'm just not afraid of God. Like, if I was really afraid, terrified of him, I bet I wouldn't do that, you know? So, uh, Mo, hit that next slide. I'll leave this up. I just added, this is our list we've been putting out, the positives that you can see from the negative. So we'll add Isaiah 64, 8 and 9 to our list of how to find how to find meaning. Because he says everything's meaningless, so there's our list of how to find meaning. So I'm, I'm not going to read it all this time, but Isaiah 64, 8 and 9 will add, focus on God. It's a good way to find meaning. Let me pray.